The words you are about to hear describe real events that took place in 1812. All quotes are from historical accounts. The only Sundays God took a backseat to fish was when swarms of migrating cod guaranteed a huge catch. Surely even God wouldn't condone such a waste. On those Sundays, they fished, but appeased God by giving a portion of their catch to the poor. All things in balance. Captain Yon Rich soon arrived, and together they dragged the boat across the rocks and into the water, joining eight other boats on the open ocean beyond the Stokseidi Skerries, rowing west until they were just east of Eidarvaki, clearly today's best fishing spot. Thuridur, as usual, surveyed the weather. Good now, she thought, but unsettled, sure to change. Sure enough, a sudden strong wind soon sprang up. They pulled up their lines and rushed toward the nearby Eidarvaki shore before the surf rose. Everyone else did the same. The skerries at Eidarvaki lay in a parallel line out from the shore, closed at one end but open to the sea on the other creating a fairly deep but narrow single channel to the rocky beach. Boats coming from the east, as they all were that day, entered this passage through a narrow gap in the scary line, requiring two tight turns hugged between scaries. Only one boat could enter at a time, the first one to arrive taking precedence while others waited their turn. As the waves got worse, Yon Rich's boat skimmed speedily over the water, one of the first to the channel entry. Thuridur took note of the tide. Returning through the Eidadbaki passage on an ebb tide was much more dangerous than on a rising one. She nodded in satisfaction. Luckily, the tide was incoming. They pulled the boat from the water and paused to watch the other boats arrive. Six made it swiftly to shore but the two clearly with weaker crews lagged behind. Thuridur glanced at her crewmates. Not good. Surf was mounting fast, now cresting over the outer line of Skerries. The lead boat, which held four people, entered the narrow entrance, veered in the churning backwash, crashed into one of the outside Skerries, and became solidly wedged against the rocks. No matter how hard they pushed with their oars, the crew couldn't get it off. Violent surf now smashed the boat back and forth against the sharp lava. They'd break in no time. As Thuridud and everyone else watched, the second boat close behind them intentionally veered its own course directly toward the scary. At great risk to themselves, they would try to save the stranded men. This was going to be tricky. Any overweight made a dangerous difference on these open boats, especially in rough waters, Unbalancing could make a boat easily flip. Still, through the buffeting waves, the crew members managed to pull two of the stranded men into their boat. They'd now overloaded their boat, its gunwales riding barely above the waterline. Any more weight would sink them, an impossible choice of who to save, with no time for debate. They left the other two men behind. As the rescuers rowed to safety, the remaining two clung desperately to the damaged boat as it began to break apart, filling steadily with water. On the rising tide, the waves now crashed over the scary and would soon submerge it. Then they'd drown. 
Thuridur glanced at Gamlason. They'd seen this tragedy too many times before. They all then looked at Captain Jon Rich. Any rescue attempt was his responsibility. He yelled out to the other skippers, Aren't you going to give me people so I can get those men? The other skippers looked out at a sea increasingly white with froth, the scary a good 1,200 treacherous, watery feet from shore. They shook their heads. Neither of the men on the rock was kin to anyone on shore. They wouldn't take the risk. So no one did. Jonrich shrugged and turned to his crew. He'd tried more than anyone else was willing to do. It's probably not a good idea to attempt to rescue those men from the scary, he commented. I'm not going anywhere. Thuridur kept her eyes on the two men struggling to stay above the sea's greedy maw. It will be known to the authorities if you don't make an attempt to get those men, she said very quietly. Jonrich's other crew members stopped what they were doing and stared. Gamlason glanced at Ingebjörg. Jonrich jumped up and glared at Thuridur. Then you take my job and be responsible for the ship and crew, he shouted. Not that he expected her to take his angry invitation seriously. He should have known better. Thuridur considered her captain's words. She assessed the risk, the distance, her crewmates. She nodded. She could bring a boat alongside the stranded boat to save the men. I'll do it, she said to Jonrich. I'll guarantee the safety of the crew. She paused. But I can't promise the same for your vessel. She looked at her crewmates, Gamlason, Ingebjörg, and the rest. They looked from one to the other. They'd go if she led them. Jonrich gave her an infuriated wave and stormed up the bank. Thuridur and her crewmates quickly pulled the boat back into the water and set off. With Thuridur at the helm, they rode rapidly through the spray, sliding alongside the scary in minutes. Then, balancing Jonrich's boat, they dragged the two men aboard. Thuridur ordered them to shove off fast. In an instant, they were rowing towards shore again. They'd done it, and they hadn't even damaged their captain's boat. As Thuridur rested on the rocks beside her jubilant crewmates, she looked around. All this drama and still mourning. Her keen eyes scanned the horizon. Well, well, it looked as though this was just a passing squall. No need to waste a good day's fishing. In an hour or so, they could go out again. She checked out the other boats. They seemed to be deciding the same. So they cleaned fish and chatted until the seas calmed. Then they headed out again. The following year, the authorities issued an award for bravery in the daring and courageous rescue of the two shipwrecked men. They awarded it to Jon Rich, who readily accepted it. Regardless of official accolades, covert conversation along the waterfront, which Jon Rich did not hear since he was almost never there, was that his crew had begun to consider Thuridud their leader. They said that if she left his boat, so would they. Talk also spread that, even though a woman, Thuridud would make an excellent captain for the lucrative and dangerous winter season.
Welcome to Crossing North, a podcast where we learn from Nordic and Baltic artists, scholars, and community members to better understand our world, our communities, and ourselves. Coming to you from the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies Program at the University of Washington in Seattle, I'm your host, Colin Joya Connors. Margaret Wilson is an affiliate associate professor in the departments of Anthropology and Scandinavian Studies at the University of Washington. She is an accomplished writer, and her first book is an ethnographic memoir, Dance Lest We All Fall Down, Breaking Cycles of Poverty in Brazil and Beyond. This book won the Independent Book Awards Silver Medal in Multicultural Nonfiction, and her second book, Sea Women of Iceland, Survival on the Edge, was a finalist for the 2017 Washington State Nonfiction Book of the Year. Her latest book is Woman, Captain, Rebel, the extraordinary true story of a daring Icelandic sea captain, which is now available in bookstores. The subject of her latest book, Captain Thuridur Einarsdottir, was born in 1777 in a rural community in southwest Iceland to poor tenant farmers. Thuridur first went to sea at the age of 11, and she quickly proved to be luckier at fishing and better at reading the weather than any of her peers. In the treacherous subarctic seas of southern Iceland, where drowning was a common occurrence, she never lost a single crew member. She became the most sought-after crew member herself and eventually the most renowned captain of her time. Intelligent, compassionate, brave, loyal, and pious, Captain Thuridur fought for the poor, the powerless, and the disabled, against self-interested landowners and bureaucrats. She earned a local reputation navigating the Dano-Icelandic courts, and when the county commissioner failed to solve a 19th-century hudanit, he turned to Thuridur to solve the crime. Captain Thuridur's life and achievements were largely overlooked by 20th-century historians, and it is now thanks to Margaret's research into archival sources that Thuridur's story can be told in dramatic and arresting detail. To celebrate International Women's Day and the publication of Margaret's newest book, the University Bookstore hosted a conversation with the author, led by Professor Andrew Nestigan, Chair of Scandinavian Studies. The event was recorded live, but has been edited for time. Questions from the audience were re-recorded in studio. Thank you to the staff at the bookstore for making this event possible. It's really exciting to be here and see such a nice turnout tonight. The book is, a little bird told me that it was one spot ahead of Michelle Obama in the biography and autobiography section on Amazon today. So it's also selling like crazy. And that's For a 10 good re- minutes. <laughs> that's a good, good reason to get one. Um, I want to say my own little introduction here that has to do with the fact that I am Margaret's neighbor. And it just is a really special and exciting moment for me here to see neighbors in the room. It's just a, uh, it's kind of a weird feeling. There's academic colleagues and some people I don't know, and then neighbors. Very special to be here with with Margaret, my neighbor. And I learned about Margaret. I didn't know she was a Icelandic expert. And another mutual friend who's not here, I feel like I was in my car or something like that. I, I maybe pulled over and was talking to this person. She was a neighbor too. Yeah. And uh, she's like, oh, do you know Margaret? And I was, I said, oh, I don't know Margaret. She said, oh, she wrote this book about Iceland. Oh, really? What's the book? And she said, it's it's Iceland. And I was, what? What? And I, and I, I, I couldn't quite get it. And then I thought I heard her say seals of Iceland. I'm like seals of Iceland. What kind of book is that? And, um, 
So then I went home and I started poking around to find out, Margaret, oh, sea women of Iceland. So I was then uh, educated and um, what a lovely, amazing book that is too. It was nominated for a best nonfiction book in 2017, uh, State of Washington best nonfiction book. Um, so uh, that was an incredible achievement and contribution there. And then that, one of the main characters in that book, um, Thuridur Einar's daughter becomes the main character in this book. So there's a neat continuity from that project uh, to this one. So um, maybe you could just begin by telling us, you know, why you wrote the book, what drew you to this project and to Thuridur Einar's daughter. I don't know. I, I think about chance. Like what makes us, what small things do we do in our lives that make such a huge difference and have such ramifications? You know, and, and we call it chance, is it? I don't know. But as I was just talking with someone here about, I was working in Brazil. And, but in 1997, I bought a house in Seattle, in the Central District, which even then I couldn't really afford. And so I was renting rooms out to pay my mortgage. It's a four-bedroom house. I still live there, so I didn't lose it to foreclosure. But so one of those people was an Icelandic, is an Icelandic woman who was here in Seattle. And so, and she's an oceanographic physicist. And so I was renting a room to her and she was going to go home to her native Iceland for a EU project. And she's going to be there for a while. And she said, well, why don't you come and visit me? This was a little after 2000. And there weren't, it wasn't the tourist place it is now. And I thought, well, okay. I mean, when else am I ever going to go to Iceland? Never. So I went to Iceland with to visit her there. And in showing me around, as any good host would do, she took me to the small coastal community of Stokseri, which is about an hour east of Reykjavik. And we were walking along through the sort of back streets, and we came across this little hut. It was a. It is still there. It's a stone hut, sod-roofed stone hut. And next to it was, at that time, it was just a little stone inscription. And she started translating the Icelandic. And she said, oh, so mm, this is a re... It's a 1949. And she said, this is a reconstruction of the winter fishing hut of Captain Thirireyna's daughter. And then she said, she lived from 1777 to 1863. And I went, she? She? The sea captain was a woman? And she said, well, yes, that's what it says. And I said, so history tells us these sea women don't exist, right? There aren't supposed to be any captains that were women sea captains. And I'd worked at sea myself, and I thought, hmm. So... You might call it chance. What is it? But that's what happened. That's, I just couldn't let go of it. I couldn't let go of it. That's it. One of the things that's really remarkable about the book is the level of detail that you are able to recount about Thurider's daily life and about some of the crises at sea she experienced in storms and things like that. It's almost minute-by-minute minute narration of the events in her life in moments of the book. You know, it reads like a novel, really, um, and I think that's part of the, the draw of the book. But how did you do that research? Can you tell us a little bit about how you were able to learn that amount about her life and then communicate it in the book in a way that is so compelling? Well, is it me or is it Iceland? 
<laughs> really. I mean, well, there are several Icelandic, some Icelandic scholars here, and there are people who know this perfectly well, but for those of you who might not know this, you know, Iceland is the land of the sagas, the, the, the incredible literature, which has inspired everybody from Tolkien to Wagner to Game of Thrones to you name it. And Iceland had the, the earliest democracy in modern Europe, and then through political infighting, they lost their democracy and were ruled by first Norway, then Denmark for 600 years. And dur they didn't get independence and full independence until 1944. And during that time where they lived in incredible oppression and near starvation, what really kept them, their sense of self, their identity and their language was this fixation on themselves as a literary people and on these sagas and an obsession with poetry. So everybody knew how to read at least well enough to pass their catechism. Women weren't taught to write particularly. Why did women not have to know how to write? But men were. And they wrote obsessively. This is what we discovered. I mean, we didn't discover this. Other people have talked about this, but this is what we found. That just farmers wrote about their neighbors. When I first started doing this research, there was one book written by a, started by a 16-year-old boy who had no education, who started interviewing Thirty when she was older. Phenomenal. And he spent 50 years putting this together, and he did a, a series of newspaper articles in the late 1800s which were put together in an edited book in, the, in 1945, about 30 years, actually. It's amazing. And I thought that's all there was, practically. Not so. Because she was such an amazing person, everybody wrote about her. There's just tons, both in the archives, as we're going through these archives page by page, we come across more and more and more and more about her. And... Uh, in books, in the library, old books where people, they have these books like Saga of Stokseri or some town. They, they, people talk about their own towns and record what people say or, or these occurrences. And so people, people recorded, they remembered and wrote down verbatim conversations. And they wrote about adulterous affairs. They wrote about children who were born that weren't really supposed to be born to that person. They wrote about fights. They wrote about betrayals. They wrote about love. It, it's phenomenal, the detail which they wrote. So, you know, we were lucky. I was, it was so exciting as we were doing this research to just find more and more and more. So, yes, okay, I was able to do the research. I, I would say that I started writing this as fiction I wrote a full third of the book as fiction, and then I thought, this is stupid, and I threw it out. And I thought, you have so much material, just you can have it almost read this way and make it nonfiction, and to try and do it fiction is not fair to 30 or to women altogether, because this is real. And so then I started it again. It's just amazing. It's Iceland. I don't know of anywhere else that has this kind of record. And because she was such an amazing person, everybody wrote about her. It's phenomenal.
yeah, it really comes through in a sparkling way in the book that that the depth of 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 sort of story that that lies behind or in the in that archive that you found in your work. Um, one of the things that I, I noted when you were talking in your introductory remarks, you said it was a woman, a sea captain. Um, you wrote a book about sea women of Iceland, and there's a lot of sea women in this in this book. Were there many women captains? Could you talk a little bit about where she f- fit in as a sea woman, sea captain? Yeah. Again, it's it's why we do the things we do at the times we do them. I, I um, so I wrote first, even though I was first intrigued by Thirty I wrote first a book on women in Iceland working at sea, and. I don't think I could have written this current book had I not done the other one first because it gave me a depth of knowledge that allowed me to write this book. I I think that's, I I can definitely say that. But what made the first book, or the Sea Women of Iceland book, so um, amazing was that Iceland itself images its history of sea work as male, entirely male. And it wasn't at all. And because, I mean, you know, how do we create reality? How do we create reality of our histories and our present through that representation? In Iceland, because it's written down, we can contradict what the present says about the history. And so when we looked at it all, myself and my wonderful research assistants, we found not just dozens, not just hundreds, but thousands of women in the history of Iceland who were working fishing. There are records of them, and there are accounts of them. That's what's amazing. They're, they tell in their own, because people are writing about them, you know, the same sort of deal, interviewing them during their lifetimes, they tell exactly what it was like for them to go to sea. So that was phenomenal. And so I could say with confidence, at least in the 17 and 1800s, that a full third of the fishing fleet was women. It's phenomenal. You know, what I realized in the end, because I kept thinking, why, why, what is this? And they didn't have enough people. I mean, fishing was vital, and they didn't have enough people to be picky. It was just anybody who could go out went out. A lot of them drowned. But, of course, it does make me wonder about the history of, say, sea or whatever else in other countries, and it's not written down, and can we find that? And we, It's very hard to recover it. But there are a few counts of women being sea captains, some of them even longer than Thurider. Um There was one woman, Haldora, who was in the mid-1700s, and she only took women in her boat. She wouldn't even take a male crew member. And so she apparently, this is what it was recorded, she used to, her brothers both had boats too, and they used to have competitions all the time, and the women always won. <laughs> in the recording, in what they said at the time, so, and there was another one who was only, was only mentioned, she was a, a captain for 30 years and only got mentioned because she got really drunk once. And people, <laughs> she said, oh God, no one must know about this. Not even God itself. But of course, everybody wrote it down so we can read about 200 years later. But so there are several accounts of women, but none of them, there was so remarkable in so many ways that people wrote a lot more about her. That's the difference. On the others, there's... I haven't done the kind of research for them that I have with it, but I don't think there would be. You know, I didn't... In the first book, I didn't find that much. I didn't do a lot of archival... Deep archival research for that 
first book because it was more of a big survey around the country. But Thurida was just just is such an amazing person that a lot of people wrote about her. So she's been written about. But there were quite a few. And she took, you know, there were a lot of women working at sea when she went to sea. It wasn't remarkable at all that she went to sea. There were lots. So One of the things that you discuss in the book that sort of makes her stand out from her first fishing trip is her luck. She's a lucky fisher. Um, I think that the, the fish are sort of jumping into the boat on her first fishing outing and everyone is impressed with, with all the fish that she's caught. Now, that's a fish story, right? Like that, that the, the fisher says, I was skillful and everyone else says, you were lucky. What about skill and luck in her life? It seems like that she's a very skillful person, but often people sort of attribute her success to things that are happenstance or, or attributed to luck. So I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. So it's a kind of interesting tension in the book. Well, I would say it's not something about her. Um, they have a word called fiskin, which means the fish come to you. The certain people are fiskin. It, my feeling, I'm not an Icelander, but my feeling of being in Iceland, talking to all these Icelanders and doing all this research, is you don't want to say you're skilled. You don't want to say, I can do all this. And, and to say it even to other, they say somebody was one of the better, they say that they were the best fishing person of the area, and they say she was. But when you say, when you talk about actually getting fish and not drowning, you say you're lucky. Because I think to say, it's almost like courting disaster to say it has something to do with you, because the sea, you never try and control the sea. That's a really stupid thing to do. And so, you know, sea people are very, you know, fishing, fishing people from time immemorial are very superstitious. Many of us are superstitious in all kinds of things. And so why tempt the sea to test you? That's what I would say. It's much better to just say, you're lucky. Lucky as a fisher, but not so lucky in love. She has this marriage that falls apart and leads to more problems, um, and then this sort of attempt to force her into marriage. Could you talk a little bit about marriage in her times in Iceland and maybe talk a little bit about her marital life? So the, the Danes who controlled Iceland, Iceland was terribly impoverished, and they didn't want poor people to get together and have children because then the children would be impoverished and they'd have to figure out how to take care of them or they'd die or something, which they did a lot. And so as a way to keep people from supposedly getting together, then they made it very hard for people to marry. You had to, have, you had to be a leaseholder, which you had to have at least one cow, the price of one cow, everything was done in terms of, you know, one cow or six sheep or how much a cloth or, or how many fish. It wasn't, people didn't really have much money. But you had to have a certain amount of wealth, which was quite hard for people to get. So, because people had to be tied as farmhands, unless they could get a lease, to work for a farmer. And that farmer was considered their master. They weren't slaves, they weren't bought and sold, and they could change where they lived once a year on moving days in May. That's it. And besides that, they couldn't even leave the farm without the farmer's permission. And the farmer was allowed to beat them. 
as long as it didn't show two bad welts. So, I mean, the con they were basically owned almost. They were serfs, basically. So um, the ability to marry was just for those who had leaseholds or the elite. There were more women than men in Iceland, and women didn't get married a lot because they didn't have enough, they, you know, and it was usually a man, almost always a man who had the leasehold. And so if a guy asked you to marry him, then they had to have the money to do it. But the problem is if you got married as a woman, guess what? The man was then your master. That was the way it went. So if you married someone, you went from having your father being in control of you or the farmer being in control of you to your husband. So then we come to Thurida. So when Thurida was younger, she, she was working partly as a farmhand, just like everybody else. And one guy did fall in, uh, a, a guy who was working with her on the fishing boat fell in love with her when she was like 20. Or I don't know, fell in love with her, what we say, that's our interpretation, but he wanted to marry her. He really wanted to marry her. And she liked him. She thought he was, yeah, they got along well. That's what the account says. They got along very well together on the boat. And he had the ability to do a leasehold so he could get married. But Thurithur, with a chance to be married, said, I'll live with you, but I won't get married until we're sure this is going to work because I don't want to give up my power. This is recorded. This is what she said. This is a very unusual thing for a woman to say. Um, he drank too much, so when they started living together, he also wanted to control things on the farm, so it only lasted six weeks, and then she said, forget this news, I'm out of here. <laughs> so, she said, so she said, lucky we didn't marry. So she left him, dumped him. And very shortly thereafter, another guy who also had a leasehold, he said, well, I'd like to marry you. And she moved in with him, but said, told him the same thing. I'm not going to marry you until we get along. We make sure we get along. They had a child. They weren't supposed to do this either, but everybody did. Because you couldn't get married, so if you get to get, I mean, people are going to get pregnant, right? So it's going to happen. So, um, and 30 really loved this child. But that was, I won't go into that, it's too long, but that marriage was duplicitly undermined and betrayed by other people. It was really a sad story. It's really, you know, it was nasty. And then the third time is when she was in her 40s and her, her deckhand, who was 20 at the time, tried to blackmail her into marrying him because he really wanted to marry her too. And she said, forget it. I'm 20 years older than you. It's not going to happen. I don't want it. You're, you're boy. But he tried to blackmail her, but it didn't work out too well for him. So <laughs> she's very clever. <laughs> Another thread that runs through the book from the beginning until the end is a ghost, Maori. Maybe you could talk about that ghost story and the place of ghosts and haunting in Iceland. The thing about, when we think about ghosts here, it's often that they're these ethereal sort of beings and they, you know, they're scary things that go bump in the night. That doesn't seem like Icelandic ghosts at all. Often they're just persons from the other side that are within a community. You don't really want them around, but they're there. And they're, people can see them as well. They say, for instance, Mori, this one, they say, 
He looked like a boy, just like a regular boy, except that he wasn't. That's what they say. That's what they said again and again. So this kind of, so maybe a specter or a fetch in English it might be better because they're very solid. Uh, they're all different kinds of ghosts that we call ghosts. But this kind is, I think the border is more permeable in Iceland between the other side and this side. The movement is, is, is it goes more easily. And of course, it's an interesting thing. If a dead person appears through a dream, they're not a ghost. A dream being that liminal space between this world and the other. It, 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 there's a lot of interesting things you might think about these presences. But this one, Mori, uh, in 1783, there was this horrific um, volcanic eruption and people were starving to death because it was, it was killing people. There's lava going all over the place. In the winter, every, all the animals died. And so this boy had been walking for probably, if you look at the geography, he must have been walking 100 miles. And he got to, this is when Thurida was seven, and he got to their farmhouse. They were about starving too. Everybody was. And he knocked on the door and he asked for food. And Thurida's father, Einar, said, no, we don't have any food to share. And so then he said, well, at least give me shelter in your barn. And the father said, no. And he turned him away in the snow. Now, in Iceland, even today, to turn somebody away from your home in the winter is illegal because you condemn them to death. And that's what happened to the boy. He died. Icelanders in this little community showed me the exact ditch today they know where he died. He then, the boy, turning away, knowing he was going to die, put a curse on the family and said he would haunt them for nine generations. He would follow that family. And he did, as far as anybody can see. He was seen until the 1980s. They say you couldn't see his feet. His feet didn't touch the ground by the 1980s. He was kind of floating, but, you know, he lasted a long time. Hundreds and hundreds of people saw him. But he caused havoc in third of his life as well as many others, but yeah, he did. He's, he's, he's a definite character and influence in her life that needs to be taken account of because of his influence. Did you, did you see him? <laughs> I got there after 1980. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Bad question. Um, but a um, little speculative question, you know, you know this, uh, you know Thurider very well from your writing this book, and I wonder if you could just sort of speculate a little bit, like what kind of life would she live today? Do you have any thoughts about what kind of person she would be if she were living in our times? She's obviously really, really smart. That comes across again and again and again. She's really smart and very incredibly observant. Now, you know, it's interesting for me to think about Iceland today, uh, too much to go into here, but the way they do their quota system. They do it, they sell in sort of almost like a commodity system. So it makes it very hard for, um, it's actually since I, I did my research for the other book in 2013, since that time, there are very, very few women fishing in Iceland. There are a lot more fishing in Alaska or Norway, unfortunately, I would say. 
and um, in this country, it's supposed to be the most gender equal in the world. And, uh, you know, if she were trying to be a captain now, I don't know if society would allow it in Iceland in the way. there, You can't tell, of course, but it would be really, there would be a, nobody in Iceland said you shouldn't be a captain at that time. Nobody said you shouldn't be fishing. There was never, a, I, in all the accounts, there was nothing that said she shouldn't be fishing. Or that when she became a captain, as a woman, she shouldn't be doing it. I didn't see a single thing of that. It, when I was doing my other research uh, for the Sea Women of Iceland, I, what you do see is toward the late 1900s, when Iceland begins to change, then you begin to see this whole idea that women shouldn't be at sea. So, um, and it got even stronger after 1900. So now when you have this whole image of the sea as male in Iceland, it's because of this huge shift that women are not allowed to be, not supposed to be on sea, whereas in the history, they certainly were, up to, basically to the time of her death, until the 1860s. And 1870s is when it begins to change, 1880s. So it's quite interesting. I mean, gender equality, as we know in this country, doesn't just move steadily forward. Now there's some time for questions from the audience, and I think what we'll do is we'll just keep one mic up here and just ask you to pass the mic. So just raise your hand if you have a question. I see one in the back, so I'm just going to... What kind of boats did they fish in? Could you describe their boats to us? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got great descriptions of that. I mean, I've even got pictures of them. They're, they're um, well, the picture's from the 1890, but it's the same boat. So they were wooden, uh, round-bottom boats, open with just thwarts across it so the whole boat was open and they were the smallest ones would have space for four oars and the larger ones certainly in the south um would have 12 where she was you couldn't really get a 12 oared boat because they were going in between the reefs um over a little bit more and other parts of iceland they could have 12 oar boats and you'd usually have about 15 people like in a 10 oar boat you'd have 13 to 14 people in it. The other people would be bailing and doing the other things they needed to do. But they were just straight, open rowboats. I'm just curious to hear what brought about the change where women were not considered equal to men when it came to being on the sea. If you really want to know that, I suggest you get my earlier book and you can get it from the library. Just read them. There's a chapter, a couple chapters on it because it's quite detailed. But toward the end of the 1800s, Iceland started to change a lot. And one thing, and they're moving, trying to fight for independence, but there was this whole idea of who was the proper Icelander. And it began to be that the proper woman was a housewife. They didn't even have a really a word for housewife before, but there was this concept of this woman should be at home. So you started getting in the accounts things like, it was said she liked to be at sea as much as being in the kitchen. Or she was as good at, um, with the sail, they had sails by this time, she was as good with sails as she was at knitting. So her accomplishment, well, these are people who are trying to be complimentary to these women still, but they have to place her strongly in the home as well. They have to make sure she's good at that too. Then as you get on toward the, 19, the early 
hundreds, you get people saying, who are still trying to be complimentary, who are saying things, well, you might have thought that she was a troll, being as she was so good at sea, but she was not. She looked as good in a skirt. So then women aren't supposed to be there. And then later on, there's this word ketling, which they use all the time then for them, which basically means hag. And so that's the term that's used all the time for sea women, and it gets more and more and more derogatory. Toward Thurider himself, herself, the, um, starting in the 1900s, they're even the 1890s, people are writing really derogatory things about her. Totally changes. And in her lifetime, that wasn't at all. But so then in, the in about 1900, Iceland went through what is considered their sort of industrial revolution when they got motors on boats. And that totally changed the entire society. And people's, they were all rural, basically, before that. And then they started moving into coastal communities, fishing communities. And then you had the advent, really, of Iceland. They didn't really have the same kind of wage labor that they would have had other places because they were all working together for a farm. When it became wage labor, it was the women were working on shore processing the fish. Also, if you, they were going out with these big motorized boats, or not big, but they were motorized boats. So they were, they were bringing in more fish than they could than the crew could process. And so then you had people hired on shore to take care of the fish, and they were all women. And then the men who made more money of, were the ones working on the boats. And then you saw a big shift. That's how it happened, basically. Thank you so much, Margaret. Um, I had a question, and I'm not exactly sure exactly how to phrase this, but it's I guess it's a discipline disciplinary question. So you're a trained anthropologist and you're writing books that are for maybe broader audiences than academic audiences. And I wonder whether you would just speak a little bit to your process of research and writing and how this might have shifted over the years or what's stayed the same or what's served you well in these different capacities. Well, before I went into anthropology, I wanted to be a creative writer, I have to say. And I went into studying creative writing. I did. And I studied with a woman at the time, Annie Dillard, who just won a Pulitzer. And so I went to, that's the reason I moved to Washington. I moved to Western, as, and she was teaching at Fairhaven, and I took courses from her. And so I took uh, several creative writing classes, you know, I, I was trying to write things and get them published, and I couldn't. This is I was in my early 20s. And then I took, and I traveled. I, you know, I left the States when I was 18, for reasons that are quite bizarre, but started traveling around the world. I, w I spent five years working my way around the world. So I didn't start university until I was 23. I just worked around the world. And um, so I took these, I was taking university classes, and... Honestly, I found university, for me, quite easy. You know, looking at path of least resistance. And so then I, but then when I took the first anthropology class, I thought, oh my God, I love this. This is what I want to do anyway. And so I got really interested in anthropology. I have been ever since. Now, in terms of writing, then, of course, if you're doing an academic, I started writing ac more academic articles, of course, as time went on. I did my PhD and everything. And honestly, for me, I always wanted to write in a more literary fashion. 
I always did. So I suppose sometimes some of us, it takes us a long time to get to the stage where we try out again what we really want to do. Now, the, the dance, the first one I did of this kind, Dance Lest We All Fall Down, was a memoir. It wasn't an academic book at all. So that was interesting. It was, it was a very interesting thing to write it. But I, but I talked a lot about race and inequality and all these sort of things that were issues that I had considered through anthropology. Uh, people have used it a lot for classes as an ethnography, actually. For these books, it was my aim. I wanted a larger audience. And I wanted to see if I could write something that read in a more literary way and had the beauty of something that's more literary and had the depth that sometimes you can get in that kind of writing and make it as rig so rigorously cited. Because I, I mean, here, you know, I'm saying in the Sea Women of Iceland, I'm telling Icelanders that their history as a foreigner, I'm telling you their perception of their history is problematic. That's a very vulnerable thing to do. But also just, I wanted it really rigorously uh, in the terms of scholarship. So that's what I tried to do with that book. But I wanted to see if I can make it a beautiful thing to read and really evoke the depth of what the experience of people was. The, their voices to have it come through. That was the aim in that book. For this one, I consciously tried to make it read like a novel. But I could do that, of course, as I've said, because of the amazing information. But I have also, I've cited it, like the whole last 60 pages is notes. <laughs> it looks like quite a thick book, but it's not that thick. It's just a lot of notes and they're smaller print. So I just thought it was an amazing story and... But I want people, you know, I don't want people to be able to say to me, oh, well, it's not really true. And so I was very fierce about that. But it's something I've wanted to do for a long time. So I'm taking this time to just do what I want and, you know, just explore this as a way of writing. I'm still writing articles, by the way, just on fisheries policy, but that's totally different. <laughs> when you notice you're not all here hearing my things about a fishery policy. So, Margaret, you're an outsider, an American, going to Iceland to write about an historic figure. So how is your work being perceived now? I could see that it would be either, oh, it's a no-brainer, of course, or is there actually pushback against this whole concept of women at sea, despite all the evidence to the contrary? Yeah, well, when I first came out with Sea Women of Iceland, I was terrified. And early on, when I started speak I was at a conference it started at a conference where men would get up and they say you don't know what you're talking about and then I'd say I'd talk about certain places they say oh well just in Bredefeder which is like a huge bay that is it's like the Puget Sound only wider and it's it's really terrifyingly dangerous and they say oh well women might fish in there but that's not really dangerous and you say of course it is and they fished all so but the thing is is because it was so sighted that eventually people began to change their opinions. Um, it's had quite an effect. Now, I feel very, very privileged. Overall, I'm amazed how receptive and kind Icelanders have been. Um, for this book, so I already have 
and also the other thing, I interviewed 200 sea women, and the sea women, you know, we started a a, a site called Sirkonder, which is we started a, a site for sea women, and they're all getting together. They do it on Facebook, and so it's all on Facebook, and so they've all got together as a meeting. But it's really cool, and so they know me. And uh, by the way, if I hadn't worked at sea before, I never could have done that book. They all said, "Oh, and what'd you do?" You know, and I wouldn't have understand their experience. All those interviews. Then for this book, I'm doing it again. This is a, you know, it's a very dangerous thing. to. I'm talking about a controversial person. I might say it's just come out in Iceland right now. I don't know what the reaction will be. But from the very beginning, the communities of Stokser and Erbaki and also, I mean, the people have been so incredible. I mean, the you'll look at the acknowledgments are really long. I could never could have done this without Icelanders working with me. I mean, it's amazing. People, you know, those those archival things I'm talking about. I can't read them. They're they're in kind of Icelandic Danish mix, and they're in this incredible writing that's very hard to read. And so you have to be a specialist. And so people, scholars in Iceland, transcribe them, and just you know, out of just said, oh yeah, we'll help with that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And people in the community there, they went all out. People photocopied private manuscripts that they had, handwritten manuscript, and gave them to me to use. I mean, it's just phenomenal how much people help me. I will say I feel very, in terms of how Icelanders are going to react, all these friends of mine are right now buying it as we speak. So we shall see. I haven't come across any of them who've read it yet. So Amundsen, their major bookshop chain has it, and apparently there's, the university bookstore is going to get it next week. But I, several Icelanders read advanced copies and wrote endorsements in the front of the book, who were very respected people. And the first lady of Iceland, Eliza Reed, she also endorsed it. The publisher put her endorsement. It says Eliza Reed. It doesn't say first lady because that would sound like a political endorsement. But if you're an Icelander, you obviously know that she's the first lady. So that makes me feel really happy. I, I really am grateful she did that. So, and it makes me feel very honored. So you got me. I don't know. But, but all over, Icelanders have been so incredibly generous to me. I, I will say, and to the research. And they've been excited about it. That's what makes me feel so, I feel honored, honestly. I think I could sit here for another hour listening to you, but I think we're reaching the end of our time here. Let's conclude for the evening with a big round of applause and thanks to Margaret. Thank you, guys. Would you or someone you know like to take a class at the UW to learn more about Iceland or Scandinavia? UW Summer Study is open to any U.S. high school student, college student, or member of the public. In 2023, we're offering four courses. In Scan 230, Introduction to Folklore Studies, you can study folktales, legends, jokes, songs, proverbs, and other forms of traditional culture together with the living people and communities who perform and adapt them. In Scanned 270, Sagas of the Vikings, 
You can study Icelandic sagas and poetry about Vikings in the context of 13th century Scandinavian society. In Scand 330, Scandinavian mythology, you can study the pre-Christian Norse religions of Scandinavia. And in Scand 375, Vikings in popular culture, you can study media representations of the Vikings in 19th and 20th century advertising, comics, film, literature, music, poetry, propaganda, television series, and video games. Registration opens in April. Go to scandinavian.washington.edu. Crossing North is a production of the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies Program at the University of Washington in Seattle. Today's episode was written, edited, and produced by me, Colin Joya Connors. Special thanks to Taya Lund for reading the excerpt of Woman, Captain, Rebel at the opening of our episode. Today's music was used with permission by Christian Hranar Paulsen. Links to his music can be found in the show notes for this episode or on our website. Sound effects are from zapsplat.com. Visit scandinavian.washington.edu to learn more about the podcast and other exciting projects hosted by the Scandinavian Studies Department. If you are a current or prospective student, consider taking a course or declaring a major. You can find complete course listings for the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies Program at scandinavian.washington.edu. Once again, that's scandinavian.washington.edu.